0: Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, this ministry, Paul is continuing to do something rather distasteful to him. He's put in a position to defend his ministry, not because he wants to, but for the sake of the church at Corinth, who have been influenced by men that Paul says in the 11th chapter are transforming themselves as apostles of Christ. We should not marvel, for even Satan himself is able to transform himself into an angel of light. And so these newcomers to Corinth were duping the church, they were deceiving the church, and they're accusing Paul of many wrong things. And we'll see in the first three verses, the way Paul speaks in these verses, he's responding to the criticism, while at the same time, he's instructing the church and seeking to rescue them from The influence of these false teachers. He would say, We have this ministry, and I think we can expand that and do no damage to the text. While Paul's speaking of his apostolic ministry and those who were on his team that served with him, ministers of the Lord, we learn in the Bible, and we use this word diakonos, we are all servants. That's what the word means. We've mentioned several times, it just means doing menial tasks, tasks of low skill and low prestige. That's how we are servants. It's to serve one another. Paul would make this point in Ephesians chapter 4 and the 11th verse when he spoke of the teaching gifts. He, that is Christ, gave some apostles, some prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Uh, Certainly that includes the speaking gifts, but it also includes the work of serving that the church does for the edifying of the body of Christ. How do we serve each other, not only physically, With menial tasks, Paul would say in that same context, we serve the truth to one another. We speak the truth in love. So I think we can see here Paul is referring to the ministry official, yet we can expand that and look at how we have a ministry as a church. We have this ministry to one another. Yes, maybe not in an official capacity like Paul the Apostle, But as servants of the Most High God, the Lord Jesus Christ, He calls every one of us to be servants. So Paul says, therefore, having this ministry, which points us back to what we've learned in chapter 3. What is this ministry? It's the ministry of the New Testament, Paul says, for which he's been made an able minister. It's not the ministry of the letter which kills, but the ministry of the Spirit which gives life. So the ministry we're involved in is a life-giving ministry because the Spirit is the one that gives life. It's also a ministry of righteousness because the same Spirit in the New Covenant ministry that writes the law not in tables of stone but in fleshly tables of the heart, He gives life, He gives righteousness, and therefore Paul has great hope and confidence. He has a very clear ministry to speak because of his hope in the Spirit of God. In this ministry, the blind eyes and hearts that have been veiled are turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We're being changed or transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, having that ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. Three things this morning. Paul's ministry and ours is a mercy ministry. Number two, it's a ministry of renunciation. And three, specifically to Paul, it's a preaching ministry. And what's the implications of that for us today? A mercy ministry. Paul says, We faint not. The word here means to lose heart, to be discouraged, to be exhausted, to be weary. The word is a compound word, which is ek, out of, and kak, which comes from the root word kakos, which is always translated evil. So, what Paul's saying is ultimately to faint. Ultimately, there's the potential of out of an evil heart departing from the living God. In our modern day language, we would call it burnout. You ever had burnout? Ever been so wearied and exhausted, you pitch in the towel, as we say in our modern day? Now, there are two reasons that we could experience burnout. One is the strenuousness and the difficulty of serving, it's very difficult, it's very hard. In any type of serving you do, There are challenges, there are sacrifices to be made. If we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we see much to which he could be burned out about, right? But I don't think that's the burnout here. You know, I've never heard of a construction worker experiencing burnout. Now, that's a hard job. It's strenuous. It's difficult. Every time I pass a construction site, I think, what a grueling job. The extreme heat, the extreme cold. And being on these buildings, working long hours. Now, I may be wrong, I didn't Google it. But I don't think that's a problem among the strenuous, difficult work of construction workers to experience burnout. This phrase was coined in the 1970s by a medical professional who was trying to help professionals, and he called it burnout. Because of the strenuousness of the work they were doing, but also of having high ideals or expectations it was usually professionals even in a secular sense who were involved in serving like doctors and teachers they're experiencing burnout that's not that the work is not difficult in any context you have difficult work yourself whether it's serving or whether it's in a family or whether you're doing any kind of work the key there to that burnout is high ideals or we could say having unrealistic expectations right What are the expectations sometimes of serving? Well, at least they could thank me every now and then, right? I mean, don't you expect expect a thank you every now and then? Or at least they could acknowledge that I came and visited them or I texted them or gave them a call. I mean, you'd at least think they could say thank you or at least acknowledge something I did. Or why all the criticism? I mean, I at least expect not to be criticized. Have you read of the criticism of the Apostle Paul? Beloved, it was so bad that they even were criticizing the way he looked. That's when you say, are you serious? Really? Are we going to sit around and talk about how big my nose is? Give me a break. But they said Paul's appearance was weak and bodily present. They got so bad at Corinth that they were being influenced by these false teachers to criticize the way he looks. Paul, why don't you just experience burnout? Think about you mothers here. Surely that word has passed through your brains a couple of times anyway. The difficulty, the strenuousness of being a mother. Imagine hearing a mother say, I've had it, I'm burned out. Well, why? My three-year-old didn't give me a birthday card on my birthday. I mean, you would think I would at least get a birthday card. Is that a bit Unrealistic. Now, if your older children are not giving thanks, and dad, you probably need to step up and talk to them. And as a proxy dad, as a pastor, I'll just speak to you young people, don't ever do that. And husbands, make sure you get the card on the day. But isn't that a little bit unrealistic? Say, I went a whole week preparing meals and washing clothes, and not a single person in the family ever said thank you. Now, that's not good. But if that is the basis of not fainting, you're already a goner. Listen to Jesus' low expectation on ministry. Luke 6.35 Lovely your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. Hope means don't expect a singular thing. Have very low expectations in ministry and you won't faint. But when you have unrealistic expectations, it's not going to go well. Jesus said, For great shall be your reward, and you shall be children of the highest, for he is good to the thankful and the evil. Therefore be ye what? Merciful. What's the basis of Paul not fainting? Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy we don't think you see beloved have low expectations with people yes me included have high expectations for mercy and you won't become exhausted spiritually you won't experience burnout because the basis of ministry is not the people it's the living God who has been merciful to you Paul has an attitude to say are you kidding me I would quit Because they criticize me, I'm just thankful I'm not going to hell. I'm amazed with the God of mercy that He saved me, a wretch like me. I can't believe God is gracious to me. Who cares if I don't get some gratitude? I mean, really? Who cares if they don't thank me? That's not good. Paul's addressing problems at Corinth that are not good. But you see, the expectations that are placed upon God's people is God Himself. And so Paul, based on a mercy ministry, doesn't faint. And beloved, you shouldn't faint either. See? It's not that we need to be appreciated as good as that is and as right as that is in affirming one another and thanking one another. We need to appreciate the mercy of God and then you won't be so needy when it comes to being thanked. Again, I want to stress, not good but not necessary as far as serving one another. Paul would make this point to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and the 12th verse when he says, And I thank Jesus Christ our Lord, who hath enabled me, for He counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Paul has an appreciation of Christ, that he's thanking Christ all the time. Now how is it that Christ deemed Paul faithful? By enabling him. He enabled me. That's why Paul was faithful. There's no merit here. Paul was counted or he was deemed faithful by Christ because Christ was going to enable him by his own mercy. Putting me in the ministry, which means by divine appointment. Paul was appointed to ministry. Verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy. Paul, why is it you keep going? How is it you don't quit? How is it you can take these people talking about your nose and your face? Mercy. I am so amazed at mercy. Or as John Newton wrote, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's one particular nuance of this word mercy that, I, that I'm kind of drawn to it means to bring help to a wretch. Do you qualify? (laughs) I hope we do. That's the only kind of people mercy comes for. A wretch. Why did John Newton think that? Because I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He was in a miserable plight, and he didn't even know it. But mercy found John Newton, and it found Paul. And mercy can find you, beloved. Isn't that good news? Do you need the mercy of God? Paul said, "O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death?" That's not a bad word. All those people think it is today. It's been taken out of the song "Amazing Grace" by some groups. One man said, "It's just too negative." It's wonderful because Paul had obtained mercy. Now, now, now how did mercy? How did God bring mercy to the wretch like Paul? He brought it to a great sinner. Blasphemer, persecutor, injurious. Slandered the name of God, persecuted the people of God, and then added insult to injury. He hurt them physically, and he abused them. He was a madman when you read the account in the book of Acts. So mercy came sovereignly to Paul. Suddenly a great light shone round about him, which means unexpected or unforeseen. He wasn't looking for the light. He wasn't looking for mercy. He wasn't looking for anything except his own selfish gain, he would say in Philippians 3.6. And what happened? Unexpectedly, mercy was brought to the chief of sinners, Paul would say in the same context of chapter 1, 1 Timothy. This is a worthy saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, That's not just language to fill a gap to finish a sentence. That's really what he thought about himself. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. And Jesus didn't say, look, Paul, I I give you four choices. First, you want to exercise your free will and come to me. And then second, you can be a Christian member, you can be a Christian deacon, you can be a Christian pastor, or you can be a Christian apostle. He said, arise and go into the city, and it will be shown you what you must do. That's... A sovereign arrest. Mercy found Paul. It went after Paul. Sovereignly. But it also was brought to him without merit. Right? What merit can you possibly find in a blasphemer, a persecutor, and someone that's injurious to the cause of Christ? Do you see anything that's good there? worthy or deserving, where you can say, and I get it with Paul. Now maybe not with some people, but Paul, I see where he would have been merciful to him. I mean, he was really a good guy. He was the worst. What did Paul deserve? He deserved the wrath of God. He deserved to be left in his own sin. So beloved, why is Paul not feigning? I have received mercy. He was so amazed with the mercy of God that when people basically, figuratively spit in his face, he wiped it off and kept going. How is that possible? Because his expectation was high in the mercy of God. Mercy just keeps coming to Paul and coming to Paul every morning. New morning mercies, Lamentations 3 says, just keeps coming. So Paul keeps going because Christ enabled him putting him in the ministry. It's sovereign. It's to great sinners. It's without mercy. And Paul's conversion, the mercy brought to Paul, was brought to him for you, 1 Timothy 1 tells us. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1, about the 16th verse. Why did he obtain mercy? That Christ would show all long suffering as a pattern, a prototype, a sketch, a model for all those that would believe on him afterward to everlasting life. What on earth does that mean? Paul was separated by God from his mother's womb. And Christ was long-suffering all those years as Paul got worse and worse and more mad and more mad and persecuted and killed and hailing men and women in prison. And Jesus exercised his perfect patience. Why? For you that would believe on Him afterward. So that when you look at Paul's life, what would you say? If mercy could find a man like that, surely mercy can find me. Jesus handled Paul specifically for maybe a million other reasons why He let him go on to the point where He rescued him and redeemed him and called him so that you would have hope That when you look at Paul, there's nothing you've done, no depth you've reached, no sin you've committed that you could say, mercy can't be for me. It is, beloved. Have you obtained mercy? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come to Christ whose arms are open wide in the day of grace that we live in? Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, this service that we do one to another, we don't lose heart because of God's mercy. So young people, don't take that to mean it's good for you not to thank your parents, especially your mother. But notwithstanding, we don't faint. Because we're amazed at the sovereign goodness and mercy of God. So have low expectations in people and have high expectations in Jesus Christ because He will never let you down, beloved. He will never fail you. Number two, in verse 2. It's a ministry of renunciation. Paul would say in verse 2, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but... By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, what are they accusing Paul of? Well, they were accusing him of giving up on the church at Corinth in verse 1. Paul's just quitting on you guys. You remember he didn't come as he said he would in chapter 1. He explained that. But the false apostles are saying, yeah, he's he just quitting. He's just giving up on the church. No mercy keeps him going. Number two, Paul hides things. The word hidden, as we've talked about previously, is kryptos, which we get our English word cryptic or encryption. That's where you change the language into some kind of code and computers so that nobody knows what it is. It's secret. What are they saying about Paul? Oh, he's hiding things. He's a double-minded man. He won't tell you the truth. So Paul is going to renounce such cryptic Things in his ministry and so should we. So how does Paul do this? He follows the word renounce which means to declare, to speak out, to give up something, the hidden things. That's the main verb. Then he follows with three verbs that modify or three clauses which are participles. We have renounce which means not walking, not handling, two negatives, one positive, but commending. Three verbs that support the main verb. So we need to see what Paul's saying here. First, the two negatives. We have renounced these hidden things, which means we're not walking in craftiness and we're not handling the word of God deceitfully. Craftiness means subtlety, it means using indirect methods to accomplish something. We might call it clever. Now, that's not a good compliment with the word clever. Someone that's trying to gain something by using an indirect means. And we have that all over our culture of Christianity today, right? Using indirect methods instead of the Word of God to try to gain followers. Or maybe a big church. Right? The second word is handling, which means adulterating. To adulterate means to introduce a foreign substance to make something of lesser quality. Now, why would anybody handle the word craftily and adulterate it? Like adulterating a food commodity. Why would any manufacturer do that? Because you can reduce production costs by adding a substance that's less inferior and lower cost to increase your what? Your gain. You market it the same as you always have and you charge the same price, but you lower production costs because you sneak in something inferior. That's adulteration. Now, why would anybody handle God's word craftily and adulterate it? For gain. Not the good kind of gain, but the bad kind. Does this not explain the subtlety of the devil in Genesis 3? Now, remember, these ministers, Paul said, are ministers of his. So it's no big deal. They transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Which means what? They're not transformed by seeing Jesus in 2 Corinthians 3.18. They're transformed by law. And that's what they're bringing to the church accordion. They're transformed by self-improvement. By just doing something. Rather than seeing Jesus. A wrong kind of righteousness. You don't want that righteousness. You want to reject it. The subtlety of the devil. His craftiness. His guile. He's trying to achieve something with indirect methods. How does he adulterate the Word of God? He introduces something far less inferior, his own thoughts, his own words. And beloved, if I could get you to see one thing here that the devil wants to play on in the context of Christianity. Remember, these false teachers are in Christianity. They're not out. Those are the easy people to recognize. We we hear that advertisement We say, I get that. But it's people that transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. That's the hard stuff. Because they're saying some right things. Three words the devil played on two perfect people, particularly Eve. Three words. Good, pleasant, desirable. Good for food. It looked so good. Pleasure. It was pleasant to the eyes. It looked satisfying to my eyes. Desirable to make one wise. Every false teacher. I challenge you to go to every false teacher in the New Testament. You will find in the context, if you go wide enough, this issue. They offer you something good, pleasure, and desirable. Or you wouldn't want it. Why on earth would you want it? And they couch it in truth by introducing something far lesser that has nothing to do with God. Peter would say this in 2 Peter chapter 2 when he said, And there were many false prophets among the people, as there also will be many false teachers among you, bringing in damnable heresies, denying even the Lord Jesus that bought them. That's not a genuine bought. I don't have time for that. Set that aside. Search that out. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason that the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now rest assured, a false teacher doesn't get into the church by speaking evil of truth in an open way. He's got to be crafty and he's got to adulterate. Nobody says, well, I don't believe Jesus is God. And they get into a Christian church. Nobody speaks evil of truth as if it's evil and they can dupe people. That's the easy stuff. What do they do? And through covetousness, with feigned words, plastic, plastos, plastic words, they will make merchandise of you. They are covetous, and they're going to play on your covetousness, which still lurks in our flesh. So how is the truth evil spoken of? It says that God is a, is a means to a gain Rather than the truth is, God is gain. And if you don't see God that way, you're going to be duped. It's happening all over America. American Gospels today. They don't make God the end and the aim. They make truth a means to something else that they want. Through covetousness. Which means what? Gain. Gain. Greedy gain that's what they're after. And they, they disguise it. They're cryptic. They use encryption so that the Christian can't see it and it'll destroy you. So be careful when you're looking on the internet or searching for churches. So there's the two negatives. And that's the, the, the denominator for both of them. These men are seeking gain. Okay, Paul, you say you renounce these things. Well, prove it. Okay. Here's the positive. Commending. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The word manifestation means to exhibit. An exhibit like art exhibit, museum exhibit, trade show exhibit. is where you put something on display and you invite the people in to take a look and see what they think. Paul has two exhibits for which he commends. First, the truth he speaks, and secondly, himself. Commend means to bring two things together to present to somebody else. Exhibit A, Paul says, the truth I'm speaking. Exhibit B is the life I'm living. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? There's two audiences in this exhibit. He invites two groups of people in. Well, a group and a one. Every man's conscience. Audience of many in the sight of God. Audience of one. Now what's Paul saying here? The conscience is that alarm system that helps you to know what is right and wrong. Paul says if any man who has a functioning conscience will be honest with themselves, when they look at Paul's gospel and the way Paul's living, they'll say these words, he's legit. Paul, you talk about all these sacrifices for the gospel, how hard it is. Did you see how he suffered? He's legit. Paul, you talk about that it's God is the gain and not money, not prosperity. What about you, Paul? Did you see where he lived? Does he live in a mansion? Look, ministry is not a vow of poverty, but there's something wrong with a man that lives in a mansion on the hill. And he's a preacher. He's write it down. There's something wrong with that. Let me say again, ministry is not a vow property. But a million dollar mansion, even the world says, hey, gospel, sacrifice, million dollar mansion? Something's not right here. In other words, your gospel is proven by your checkbook. Paul says, If you want to look at my life, take a look. He wasn't saying, I have no sin, I have no problems. He's saying the gospel that I love and speak about is the gospel I'm trying to live. Are you legit? Now, I know how you young people, scratch that. I don't know how you young people use that word. But you know what it means, legitimate? I've tried to ask some people and I never can remember. Legitimate means to confirm and affirm a rule or a law. You're going to confirm. Something is true according to a rule of law. What's Paul saying? What am I saying about Paul being legit? You can confirm who Paul is by the rule of the gospel and in the way he lives. Paul is legitimate. Beloved, we should be legitimate. Not perfect, not sinless. But there's something about the gospel we love and live or love and believe and say that we embrace that somehow measures up with the life we live. Now, that's not a a condemnation of uh, having wealth. We've said that multiple times. So, don't have time to say that. Go back and listen to some prior sermons. But Paul's gospel, exhibit A, he brought gospel and life together for any man's conscience. And any man can say, you know what, he's legit. And if they didn't, they're just deceptive people, right? There are a lot of people living a non-legitimate Christian life because they don't know God. Don't let that be us, beloved. Right? We need some legitimate Christians to be on exhibit, not for self-glory, but for the glory of God in Christ. And so be real. The worst leveling of condemnation that Jesus gave in the New Testament were men that were not legit. They just talked about how they were, but their hearts were full of dead men's bones. But they gave the appearance that they were legit. Paul said, examine, let your conscience guide you here. But if your conscience is not working right, Paul says, there's a greater audience that I I go to. Because it could be that every man would have been dishonest and said, no, you're not legit, Paul. You're just a huckster. You're a peddler. You're trying to adulterate the Word of God. He said, in the sight of God, there's audience number two, and that's the one that matters. If everybody gets it wrong about you, you appeal to one in the sight of God. Paul said this in his letter to the church at Thessalonica because he he often found himself in a position to have to tell the people he loved. That's not what I'm about. Quit listening to these people. They keep criticizing me. Paul's not feigning because of criticism. But he's addressing a problem. He would say in that letter, chapter 2, for our exhortation, our preaching was not of deceit, nor uncleanness, nor of guile. Guile is another Greek word that means what? Crafty. Unclean, impure motives. Deceit, you're just trying to get something from the people, Paul. Paul says, that's not what I'm about. Well, prove it, Paul. How do we know? But as we're allowed to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who is testing our hearts. Paul is living open in the sight of God. So he asks questions of his own conscience and himself. Lord, did I have the wrong motive there? If he did, he repents and keeps going. Lord, was, when I said that, was I thinking about something other than I shouldn't have been thinking? And even then, Paul says, it's a hard thing to know all your motives. But he lives in the sight of God. He's open before God. So if everybody's getting it wrong about Paul, he's put in trust with the gospel so he knows God is testing his heart. Not in a negative, bad way, but in a way that Paul brings it before God. And he relates to his Father. He has communion with God and he's bringing his confession, his repentance, and his heart before God. That's going to keep Paul from what? Deceit, uncleanness, and guile. But here's the second part of that. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, there's Exhibit A again, he just points to the consciences of the church at Thessalonica, you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes, he says that three times in two chapters. You know, I just presented to your conscience, you know we didn't use flattering words, nor a cloak of what? Covetousness, God is witness. Audience number two, the one that really matters. If the church at Thessalonica gets it wrong, God knows my heart. I'm living open before God. Yes, I struggle with covetousness. Yes, I fight against it. But that's not why I came to Thessalonica. Nor have men sought we glory, not from you or any other man. Now look what Paul just did. If Paul is a man pleaser, he's going to speak with deceit, uncleanness, and craftiness. Why? Because he wants the approval of man. Flattering words. Because he wants the money of man. Cloak of covetous. Because he wants the praise of men, Words designed to get glory. So Paul's renunciation is a formal statement we have abandoned. We will not go there with cryptos or cryptic language. And I present the truth I preach alongside of myself to every man's conscience, but then, more importantly, in the sight of God. Because if we're not living in the sight of God, we could be deceiving ourselves and deceiving everybody in our wake, couldn't we? That's the main Audience, the audience of one who's always accurate, who's always right, and who is always merciful, and who always loves you. It can be a fearful thing to think every waking moment, every thought you have is in the sight of God, or it can be a very comforting thing because Jesus died for those thoughts and that covetousness and that sin that's even in our hearts. And so we bring it up before the God of mercy and we keep pronouncing By not walking and handling, but by commending ourselves to the world's conscience. Unbelievers, believers. But in the sight of God, we speak, Paul would say in chapter 2. And then lastly, Paul's preaching ministry and what the implications are for us. Verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now here's another accusation. Paul, you're just hiding things, you're veiling things. The word hid is veil. So Paul, in some sense, is going to concede. He says, okay, you got me on this one. Most of the Jewish people Paul preached to had a veil over their heart and mind. So Paul says, yeah, it is concealed, I admit, but I'm not concealing it. I'm not hiding anything in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. See, as Christians, we don't hide things. But the devil hides. He has to. He didn't have anything glorious. False teachers hide things. They take it off their website. They don't want you to know. It. They're cryptic. Christians can be cryptic, right? We can... Get to the place where we're hiding things for our own selfish gain. So Paul says, yes, the gospel can be hid, but it is hid to those that are lost. Who are the lost people? The lost here can mean temporal ruin at times, but not in this context. Paul's already used it once in 1 Corinthians 18, where he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. 2.14 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness. What? The gospel. And a natural man is what? perishing eternally forever he's perishing but unto us which are saved it is the power of God Christ the power of God he uses it in chapter 2 and 16 or 15 for we are unto second epistle chapter 2 15 for we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ and them that are saved and them that are perishing that's the present tense of earth. what does it mean to perish for we are Verse 16, to the one we are a savour of death unto or leading to death. Dead in sin, leading to eternal death. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to those like that, the perishing, the dead, under the wrath of God. Now, a few questions who is the God of this world? What's he trying to do? And how does he do it? And then we'll apply it to preaching. The God of this world, clearly, you guessed it, you're right, it's the devil. Jesus in John 14, twice in John 16, refers to him as the prince of the world, the ruler of the world. Here the word world is not creation world. Creation is not a moral agent. It's not evil or good. It's good, in fact. God created it good. It's I own the age in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of people in this age. World is age there. It's a spirit, it's an age, it's a disposition, Paul would say. What is he trying to do? He wants to prevent lest, means negative, prevent not. He wants to prevent the light of the gospel of Christ from illuminating or shining. He doesn't want them to see it. That's the meaning of the imagery there. He doesn't want people to see. He wants them to stay blind. The aorist tense for half means just simply started sometime in the past, and we'll put that in the garden. At the fall of Adam, we were all plunged into darkness, and we've been caught up in the rebellion of Adam in the darkness and blindness of our minds ever since. And the devil aims to keep you there. Or to keep unbelievers there. Because the lost in whom he's blinded are those that believe not. It's the unbeliever. So that's what he's trying to do. That's what he wants to do. That's who he's doing it to. And he'll take us with him if he can. How does he blind them? First note, he blinds their minds. Not first their affections and their will and their emotions, but their thoughts. How crucial is your thinking in the war against the rulers of darkness? It's your minds he's after. And I fear he's captured some of your minds here. And he's playing for keeps, beloved. His time is short. What do you do with your mind? Yes, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know there's temptations. I know there's a struggle. I know it's strenuous. But there's mercy and there's grace to battle with your mind. So no. Say, I don't remember anything he said. Remember this. It's your mind that he's after. It's your mind. He wants to keep you blind or he wants to put you back in the blindness. Paul talked of this blindness in Ephesians 4.17. He said that we henceforth walk not as other Gentiles in the vanity of their minds. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Rock-bottom blindness. The heart and the mind is veiled. That's the vanity of unsaved people. He aims to keep them in that prison. That's what he wants. How does he do it? mean, okay, it's our thoughts, I get it, that's what the word means, thoughts, thinking, imaginations. The best place I know of that captures what this means, when I say I know of, I just mean me. You all may know better places in the Bible, but this is the best place I know that captures how he does this. And that's, maybe you already know where I'm going, Ephesians 2 too. Paul says, there is a way of walking, we all did, that the world does which is according to the age of this cosmos. Same word age, the course of this world. It's according to the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. He's heavily involved. The Jews used to believe that the the devils uh, were occupying the realm of air. Maybe Paul uses it for that reason, because it's ubiquitous. As air is everywhere, their influence is pervasive. You can't escape it. who walk the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that now is at work in the children of disobedience, which means obstinacy to the divine will. What is this spirit? The word means a, a disposition, a, a, a way of thinking and living to be disposed in a certain direction. It's the the spirit of the age. It's the spirit of being against the divine will. It's the spirit of disposition that's within blind people. And then he unpacks what that means in the next verse. Among whom we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the lust of the flesh and the mind. What is this disposition? It's a disposition to live life for self-gratification. And what that means, we're under the wrath of God for that. That just blows my mind, no pun intended. Just blows it away. It's your disposition that is against God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. And you who sometimes were enemies in your minds, in your minds, the carnal mind by... Wicked works. It's a disposition that opposes all that God is. It's a disposition of fulfillment of my own pleasures that makes me a child of wrath, would it not, but it not for the grace and mercy of God. That's what He's after, young people and old people and middle aged people. He draws you away the execution of your own desires the way you think, the way you plan the way you want to do life in your mind is all designed to give you maximum pleasure and Jesus comes in to rescue from that futility that emptiness why is it so empty? yeah you, you may have it for a little while but forever it's gone for blind minds They get a little bit of that, maybe a little in this world, and then forever under eternal wrath. That's not a good trade-off, is it? Now, a little application as we bring this to a close. What, then, is the design of preaching in verse 5? You guessed it, I think. If that's what he's doing in blinding so that the gospel doesn't shine. What's Paul doing in preaching with the gospel? Because he he wants it to be seen, wants it to be shined. It's just the opposite. Listen to verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's put the two things together here. He's trying to prevent the light of the glorious gospel from shining. And what does God do? He commands that the light of the glorious gospel shines. Those are synonymous. The knowledge of the glory of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ for whom God commands to shine effectually because the New Testament ministry of the Spirit gives light. Paul's preaching and what happens? The light comes and people see as he's preaching the word of God and people are transformed by the gospel. They're effectually called. Now, Paul wants people to see. He knows that his preaching doesn't make them see. That's what verse 6 is about. Because some people it's death unto death. Some it's life to life. But he preaches Christ the Lord. That's the content of his preaching. Jesus is Lord of all. And he calls men to repent and come under the Lordship of Christ. And live for His glory. So Paul hides nothing. Because God uses that gospel in the transformation and conversion of sinners. Now here's the question. Is Paul just seeking some kind of educational class here where we kind of know what the gospel is? Is that how we see? How many Jews saw Jesus and had no transformation? How many times did Judas Iscariot see Jesus with no impact whatsoever? How many times has the devil seen Jesus in Matthew 4 and was not transformed? It's not just seeing Jesus, it's savoring Jesus. Now where do you get that in the text? I get it in chapter 2. For the one we are a saver of death to death. To the other we are a saver. What is Paul? Not Paul's big nose or his weak presence. It's the gospel is characteristic of a certain flavor, a taste, an experience. That's what savor means there. If Christ is just seen, there's no transformation. He must be savored. Isn't that the very opposite of what the devil is doing in blinding? If the devil is trying to get you to carry out your own pleasures and desires, the counterpart of the gospel is Christ is superior. Christ is all. Christ satisfies the soul. Christ is savor in my mind and in my affections and my will. So preaching is designed To transform people as Christ is lifted up and as the people's souls get satisfied in God. Or they savor Him. That's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never what? Hunger. And he that thirsteth shall never. He that uh, thirsteth shall, shall be quenched. Or he that believeth shall never thirst, rather. Now, what's the imagery? Bread and water for hunger and thirst. And you know that experience. He's speaking spiritually. You savor food and water. see? Because a man who's been working in the hot sun all day, when he's offered a glass of water, he can't resist it. It's irresistible, isn't it? See, irresistible grace is in two ways. One, God commands the light to shine out of darkness. That's a sovereign work. He doesn't ask if the darkness could cooperate. He didn't say, Paul, could you cooperate with me in your darkness? I'm trying to do something here. Namely, save you. He didn't say to the light in Genesis 1 in creation, or the darkness rather, look, if you could just help me, I want to shine and produce light, but you're opposing me. God commanded the light and it did exactly what He said. Irresistible. But there's a second way it's irresistible. And that's the illustration of hunger and thirst. Right, A man that's been working all day or a woman or anybody and comes in and smells a hot meal on the table and you offer the hot meal to them. Can he resist it? Not if he's hungry. Yeah, well maybe if it doesn't taste good, he could. Is anybody ready to say the grace of God does not taste good? If you do, you're blind. You're blind. Peter would say, Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It shall be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming. That's savoring, that's tasting. Why would you ever come to Jesus anyway? Why would you go to Him? Because I've tasted how wonderful, how gracious redemption is. He's pardoned me fully. And my sin that I still struggle with, He's pardoning me. He's forgiving me as a father and a brother and a Savior. Jesus is a delightful Savior. So preaching counters the blind work or the blinding work of the devil in the heart and mind with just lifting up Christ and His glory and as God shines through that gospel. What happens in verse eighteen of chapter three? We all with open face beholding as in the glass the glory of the Lord. That's the gospel message. The light of the gospel in verse 4. And the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. All the gospel. And what happens when we see Jesus? We are transformed into the same image. From glory to glory. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, seeing, we have this ministry. What's the implication for us? Why do you come here? Do we not come for the same reason the songwriter penned those words? Brethren, we have met to worship and to what? Adore. Isn't that worship? Brethren, we have met to worship and go to sleep and be bored with the Lord our God. That's not worship. Brethren, we have met to worship because we can't be satisfied by this God. That's not worship. We have come to adore the gospel of our God every Sunday. How do we do that? Lifting up Jesus. Just taking His Word, His text, exposing it like a diamond and looking at all the edges on that diamond and loving the diamond. So we've got to come ready to hear preaching that way. Preaching by the grace of God alone must be done that way. That's the aim. We must pray for that end. We're dependent on God for that end. I can't just work that out. You can't just work that out. We pray To that end. We practice to that end. We're going to go after God for that way. We're going to pray and read the Bible looking for Jesus that way. And then we're going to give God glory for how He shined the light of His mercy in our hearts. And how we keep coming back to the light so that we may see and know more of the gracious God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved you, who loved us, and gave himself for us. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and gracious and kind. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you've shined in our hearts. Lord, I just want to pray based on what you revealed to us this morning. Help us not to faint, not to experience burnout. Help us to rely upon your mercy and appreciate the amazing, grace and mercy of our God. And if you give us that grace to do so, we will not burn out, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would renounce hidden things of dishonesty. We would not seek to be a church that simply uses truth as a means to an end, but we would exalt truth, that you would be the aim of all truth. Help us not to adulterate the gospel or adjust it in any way for anybody at any time. But call all men everywhere to repent. Come under the glorious gospel of Christ. Lord, help us not to participate in the blinding work of the devil by catering to the affections and desires of sinners, whether it be others or our own, but come under your gospel and preach it and hold it up to one another, in our families, in our marriages, to our children, and call on them to receive Christ and to walk in the love of Christ. And Lord, I pray as you continue to do the work of shining in the hearts of sinners that we would understand the role of the gospel in the effectual call, that you delight to do it as we're preaching. You delight to do it as we're witnessing. And Lord, we would not put you in a box, but we know that you use the word for conversion and transformation. So help us to see Christ, help us to love Christ, help us to taste and see that you're good. And may we be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.